The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, all in. That's where our very own Jim Labenthal now sits as he buys more stocks. Details just ahead as we debate your money with the Investment Committee. Joining me now for the hour, Stephanie Link, Jason Snipe, Jim Labenthal, John Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Anastasia Amoroso is here as well, the chief investment strategist at iCapital. Good to see everybody on this Friday. Let's check the markets. 12 noon in the east. We're in danger of posting the fourth negative week in five for stocks. Dow's good for 71. Everything else is in the red. Yields 198 on the 10-year, but our headline today, for obvious reasons, is Mr. All-In is back. All-In. Jim Labenthal, you bought more JP Morgan and you bought more NVIDIA, and now you're holding zero cash. Is that right? I call it 2 to 3%, Scott. There's always going to be a little bit of frictional cash, but that's essentially All-In. Um, I heard what you just said, fourth negative week in a row. Um, that's, you know, on the surface a reason to buy, but obviously you need to have more than that. I see what's going on in Europe and Russia. The market knows that. I see what's going on with crude oil. The market knows that. Here's the thing about crude oil. Eventually, economic incentives kick in. Maybe the crown prince of Saudi Arabia doesn't want to meet with Joe Biden, but a $100 plus barrel of oil, he's going to want to start selling oil. Uh, that's just the way it goes. You see oil below $100 in the next week or two, this market's going to rip. Put it another way, this market is one headline away from a rip higher. And yes, yes, there could be headlines that move this market lower. Obviously, bad things could come out over the weekend. But it's more likely that things get better from here, not worse. And as, as the hostilities fade, Scott, and as we get that first rate hike next week from the Fed, what's going to become more clear is how strong the economy here in the U.S. Jobs are plentiful. You've got CapEx spending galore. And by the way, nobody talks about this. COVID, we're no, we're no longer talking about it. People are going to get back to work. Supply chains are going to ease. Yeah, I see the storm clouds. I also know what's coming after okay. them. Okay. And I'm okay. positioned for it. All right. So then explain to me why Goldman today cut their GDP forecast, Jim. Uh, they say the, their recession odds now are as high as 35 percent. You, Mish, consumer sentiment fell sharply. Recession-like numbers. Things are slowing. Yep. You paint a picture. Yeah, they are, they you paint, are slowing, You paint Scott. like the prettiest picture I've ever seen. And a, a part of what you say, Jim, is no, just no, no, not no, no. true. I, not the prettiest picture you've ever seen. Not the prettiest picture you've ever seen. I acknowledge the hostilities. I see where oil is. I'm not blind to them. A recession, first off, define a recession. Two quarters in a row of broad-based economic decline. We are going to slow down with oil where it is. There's no question where it is. But do you really think, and this is a rhetorical question, I'm not asking you, do you really think oil is going to be here uh, two quarters from now? Jim, we were level? slowing down. I don't. And we, yes. were, we were slowing down before oil made its move. I, I don't Temporary understand where Scott. the... Temporary. Temporary. 
temporary. Look at all these factory announcements. What do you think is going to happen when Intel actually breaks ground on that $20 billion plant in Ohio? I will tell you again, it's a rhetorical question. Earth movers are going to be out there moving earth. Trains are going to be running, delivering supplies. Energy is going to be used. People are going to be put to work. Finances are going to need to be arranged for general contractors building things. That's going to go on in Austin, Texas, where they're building semi-plants. It's going to go on in Michigan, where they're building battery factories. I could go on and on. This is before we even get to infrastructure, which is in the out years past this year in 23 and 24. I see the storm clouds. Look, I'm not naive. I'm not blind. But this is the time you're supposed to step in and buy. I don't know. You seem like you're walking outside with shorts on. I don't know where the storm clouds are coming from. I feel like, I feel like, Scotty, Judge, I feel like this is deja vu. I feel like we did this last week. Jason was on with us. I remember this. I understand. It's a week. To some people, that feels like it's a long time. For me, that's a blink of an eye. Jason, it's a blink of an eye. J- Jason, I think, yep, go Jason ahead. Is, is, is Jim wrong? Yeah. <laughs> so for me, Scott, I wish I was just as excited as Jimmy is. I'm, I'm obviously more embarrassed, and I said this last week. I mean, the major themes, again, and, and Jimmy alluded to the storm cloud. I mean, it's Ukraine. It is obviously the invasion in Ukraine. It's obviously, uh, you know, inflation. You know, and it and it's kind of where where the Fed is. You know, from a taper from a tightening perspective and moving into QT. So, for me, I with, with an inflationary print that we just saw yesterday of 7.9 percent, that is also X the commodity surge that we recently saw. You know, over the last couple of weeks, we're in day 16 of this invasion. Um, I do believe, hopefully, that uh, things will start to slow and resolve themselves soon, but. In the near term, I do think there's more volatility ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about markets right here, you know, but, but I think once QT gets underway and we can get some, a little bit more clarity going forward, you know, and we can get a, put a lid on inflation, yeah, I, th- I think we could be in a better place. But in the short run, not terribly excited about the market here. All right. Um, Steph, who, who's right? Cautious Jason or Mr. All-In, who sees what's happening over in Russia and understands that there are storm clouds regarding that issue, but finds no concern whatsoever in the fact that earnings revisions are, are picking up from a negative standpoint. The Fed is about to embark next week on a new regime of hiking interest rates. Inflation is out of control. And Jim says none of it matters. None of it matters. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think we're <laughs> going to be in a trading range uh, at this point because we do have all these uncertainties that Jason just cited in terms of the war and the economic fallout uh, from the war. Um, the, the inflation situation is, is just terrible. Um, the Fed is so behind the curve. And by the way, next month, CPI, PPIs are going to be worse than this month. Um, and the Fed, you know, they're starting a tightening cycle. And we just don't know if they're capable of engineering a soft landing, right? So, um, and, and by the way, I don't think four or seven rate hikes are go- is going to cure inflation 
at, 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 by any means. Um, we got to get the supply chains fixed. And every CEO I talk to, no visibility, not even right now, no visibility. That has not changed. And I'm thinking it's going to be maybe a 23 event. So there's a lot of inflation that's going to hit the system. And yeah, that's going to put pressure on the consumer. That's the cautionary part of where, where I'm at, right? But on the, on the positive side is 2022. I always thought 2022 was going to be a slower growth year in GDP versus 21. You simply don't have the fiscal and monetary stimulus tailwinds that we had, that we had last year. So and now you have the war, right? So so I always expected uh, a slowing of growth, but above trend growth. And I still think we can uh, see above trend growth for the year. Jimmy mentioned jobs, wages. Um, we have auto. Housing is still strong. Um, credit conditions are positive. Banks are lending. So uh, debt service ratios are the best in 50 years. And the consumer has 2.6 trillion in excess savings. So I think we're in choppy times in the short term, but in the medium term and in the long term, I'm bullish. And that is why when I was on earlier this week, I told you I was adding onto, into the weakness. I was. Um, Union Pacific, American Express, Dow Chemical. I've got a couple of other names for you next week um, that are coming. But um, I, I so I just think there's opportunities. You kind of have to put your blinders on a little bit with this noise and look for fundamental valuation stories that really are compelling. And, and those are the names I think are. Okay, Dr. J, what, what's your take? Um, we, we have such a stark point of view disagreement in many respects. I mean, you can't, I can't imagine, I haven't heard anybody come on this network who's as bullish as Jim Labenthal. And I'm not talking about this program. I'm talking about the network. Mm -hmm. I can't remember somebody to come, who has come on and said, it's all in time. None of the economic issues that I raised, whether it's the Fed, whether it's the consumer, whether it's inflation, none of it matters, according to Jim. And, and look, maybe, maybe he's yeah, going to be not right. That's what he said. No, that is what he said. It <laughs> is that, what he said. Uh, it's what he said. Jim, did you say that? <laughs> oh, I, para I mean, I'm putting it in my I, words, but that's what he said. He said it doesn't matter. Let John go uh, and then come back to me. Let John go and then come back to okay. me, please. I just haven't heard a single person come on the network as bullish as Jim Lamenthal. And maybe he's going to turn out to be right. And obviously, people who have money on long side in the market hope he is. But what do you think? Yep. Uh, I think, you know, Jimmy is one of those guys that zooms out. He doesn't zoom in, meaning that the further you pull out, the more that this is going to be a blip. Now, does the blip, Scott, take us down to 30, you know, to 380 in the spider. I don't know. It could. Um, right now, you know, we, we broke down to whatever, 414 this last week. Um, we're a little higher than that right now. Again, if I zoom in, it looks terrible. If I pull back, it doesn't look as bad. That's the way these charts work, and Jimmy's investing for the long term. I, I see the inflation side of it. Absolutely, we all do. Energy, food. I mean, take a look at a corn chart, Scott, sometime, and you'll see we've averaged closing price going back to 2015 on corn around 360 to 380. We're pushing 780 right now, and it's going a lot higher. It is just going higher because there's a big difference between droughts, which usually are the uh, supply side that, you know, as long as uh, demand stays the same and you take supply away, you got prices higher. Now we've got a war. We've got fertilizers that aren't going to be 
um, uh, in as as available as they should be. Um, and the prices of those fertilizers are going through the roof. That's why it's my second largest sector play right now is fertilizer. Um, and as far as uh, energy and so forth, yeah, we'll bounce around for a while, but there's no way Venezuela or Iran are going to be in for most of a year. Now, that doesn't mean, because Jimmy's looking out six months, probably three to six months, it doesn't mean um, that I'm all bared up. I am bearish in the short term, Scott, because the consumer has been spending a lot of those savings that Stephanie talked about. Uh, I'm not saying she's wrong. I'm just saying they've been spending. And that's why we're seeing Dollar General um, and a bunch of the uh, places where people go when they really have to scrimp and save. We're seeing those uh, moving uh, in a direction that people think they're going to be dialing down. And it's you know hard, tough to say dialing down from Walmart, but they are. They're going to be dialing down because they don't have as much savings, that particular consumer cohort. But overall, we'll be fine. Uh, but we're going to all be paying a lot more for gasoline. It's going to be it's 433 nationally right now, Scott. I'll make you a bet this time next week. We're closer to 460 and it's just going to keep going because, again, you can't meet the demand uh, with stuff that's not available for six to eight months at least. That's what I hear about Venezuela and Iran, if they even both come back onto our market. Jim, I'll come back to you. Did I did I mischaracterize your position? I, I th listen, I, I love our parrying, Judge. I think you're engaging in hyperbole. Let me be clear. I see the risks, but it's kind of like the way the way you portray me is like I'm Captain Edward Smith steaming the Titanic into an ice field at full steam ahead. And what I'm telling you is we're coming out of the ice field. Everybody sees the icebergs, okay? What John's talking about is factual. What's also factual is that, every, listen, I listened to a presentation on oil yesterday, and it's like the end of the world. We're going to go to $200 a barrel. You're not going to get oil from Venezuela. You're not going to get oil from Canada. There are so many knots out there that this is exactly the time that supply finds its way onto the market. And you know why it finds its way on the market? Because it's economically wise to do so. I don't care whether it's Saudi Arabia. I don't care whether it's Canada. The oil is eventually going to come online. And the market, okay, the market looks forward. I'm not saying something that's brilliant here. We all know that. The market looks forward. Maybe I'm early by a week or two. That's a risk I'm willing to take. And I don't begrudge anybody who wants to wait a week or two and see things get better and start to get in there. But I am already positioned. I have my ship trimmed for coming out of the ice field and steaming full full steam ahead. Okay. Anastasia, is, is, he, is he missing the possibility of icebergs below the surface that haven't come up yet, like earnings disappointments, slower growth, like Goldman suggests we're going to see deteriorating consumer and greater fears of recession. Is Jim missing that or is he dead on correct? Well, I'm going to agree and disagree with Jim. I'm sorry, Jim, but I'm going to agree with the fact that a lot of the first order impacts seem to have been priced into the market. I mean, take a look at what happened to commodities and what happened to equities when you had one positive headline about negotiations. And when I look at commodity prices today and we model them as percentage of what the worst case scenario for forecast is, we already have priced in a bulk of the disruption, a bulk of that uh, first order worst case scenario. So I do think Jim is right that this is a bit of a coil spring near term. If we get a positive, progression in Ukraine, you could have a pretty powerful relief rally in the market. 
I'm also going to agree with Jim and say that this is the time where you may want to be looking into equities if you take a 12 month plus time horizon. If you look at positioning indicators, for example, we had hedge funds that grow significantly this week. And if you look at the level of the net leverage that they have and a whole host of other positioning indicators, we can say that chances are 12 months from now, this will be a excellent buying opportunity if you buy today. However, the part that I'm going to disagree with Jim on, and I think agree with some of the other members of the committee, is that we have to consider the second order impact. And the second order impact is what if oil prices and, and wheat prices stay elevated around current levels for a long period of time? What if you got wage growth that cannot keep up with inflation? The global economy is already slowing. And by the way, the global financial conditions are back to 2015 tights and the central bankers are tightening into that. That is not a good mix. And that's why I'm glad to see that more and more banks are starting to revise up their recession probabilities, because that's ultimately what I would love to see happen. If consensus is that inflation probability is 15 percent, but all these indicators suggest that it's maybe 30 or 40 percent, then consensus is behind the curve and we need to price it more of that risk. When we do, I think it is a screaming buy in the market. I just don't think we're there yet. So let me be clear. I'm not in any way suggesting that if you don't get positive headlines out of Eastern Europe, that the stock market is not going to rip higher on a relief rally or whatever kind of rally you want to characterize it as. I fully agree that that is going to happen. My question, Jim, before we move is by saying what you did, you're essentially saying that the Fed is entirely in the market at this point. Right. The market has discounted everything that that's coming from the Fed and and yeah. it's OK with yeah. that. My only point. Can I go there? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you okay, a, I'm going to give ahead. you the ball Sorry. in two seconds. Um, my only point is that it's it's undeniable that earnings are slowing from where they were and they may continue to do so in a higher rate environment as growth continues to slow if the consumer dials back. You miss consumer sentiment today was ugly. Inflation's yeah. high. Inflation's going to be in the headlines for the foreseeable future. That has the possibility to put cold water on your narrative. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase two things you're saying. A slowdown was imminent. Totally agree. OK, but the slowdown was a mid cycle slowdown, not an end of cycle recessionary slowdown. Um, that that I feel very strongly about. Earnings are still projected to grow next year over this year. I don't want to do the whole infrastructure capex thing. I do it too many times, but it's real. And that's why it's just a mid-cycle slowdown and not something worse. On the Fed, which is this, actually the first thing you brought up, but the second thing I want to discuss. Yes, you're exactly right. I am saying that the Fed is in the market. And let's just, here's my characterization of it. Everybody says the Fed is getting aggressive. They're hawkish. They're fighting inflation. I'm going to put it to you another way. They're normalizing monetary policy. Let's just say that they go seven times over the next two years, not this year. I think that's crazy. Seven times over the next two years. And we get to 1.75 to 2% on the Fed funds rate. That's not punitive. It's not punitive. Um, it's not something that you need to fear. It's not going to kill the economy. But also, it's not going to cure supply chain driven inflation. The Fed knows that. That's not going to unclog ports or get people back to work. They know that. I don't think they're going to go seven times over the next two years. I've said it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. And we're going to see what happens for certain.
Meantime, yes. shares of two popular yes. stocks are falling today. DocuSign's plunging as the company's outlook disappointed for the second quarter in a row. Rivian shares hitting a new low today after reporting a wider than expected loss and saying supply chain issues will limit its output this year. Our next guest covers both companies. Dan Ives, the senior equity analyst at Wedbush. It's good to have you on. Great to be here. Your headlines um, made us have to have you on. I, and I'm confused about a couple things I want to discuss with you. Let's let's start with DocuSign. OK, you cut the price target to 80 bucks from 200 bucks. It's a dramatic decline in the price target. You maintain your neutral, though. But your commentary is so damning about where this company is. I'm shocked you actually are urging people to even stay in this stock. Quote, the demise of DocuSign's growth story continued as the work from home poster child delivered good January results, which were more than offset by very weak and concerning guidance, which speaks to some darker days ahead. You go on. Most troubling to us is that management does not fully have their arms around the sales execution and headwinds in the field, in our opinion. That doesn't sound like you're making the case that people should do anything but sell this stock. Yeah, look, in a few months ago when we downgraded DocuSign, I mean, our view that this was going to be a work-from-home poster child, and it was a cockroach thesis, never just one cut. There were going to be more cuts coming, and that's what we saw happening. The only reason we don't have a sell rating on this is just because there's still an opportunity on some of these e-signature and CLM deals, as well as potential M&A, that I think it puts some sort of floor in the stock. But the point is, if there's another cut coming or our checks get worse, then this is a sell where the stock could get half from here. Okay, so in part, you're looking at this as an event-driven stock, that you're urging people to stay with the story because of a possible M&A situation down the road, which obviously would be beneficial to the shares. Yeah, and just to be clear, we don't have a buy rating on it. You know, we downgraded a number of months ago on our fears that something like this would happen. This is one that for investors that own it, it's one after this. If it's sort of a risk reward play, we're not bullish on it at all. But just given the opportunity that DocuSign has, that's why we don't have a sell rating. But let's just be clear: you talked about icebergs. They ran into an iceberg, and it's been unmitigated disaster. And I think last night a huge black eye quarter. Not just for DocuSign, but I think a lot of these high flyer names that continue to sell off. What if it's just never going to be smooth sailing again for, for a company like this that did so well in the pandemic? And it's not the only story like that that we could have a conversation about. Well, if it continues, then DocuSign could get under drinking age in, in terms of where that could go if they continue to miss. And then ultimately, that thing starts to fall apart. And this could be a lot worse than at least it seems right now. Wow. Um, let's move to Rivian because your headline there is equally a stunner, right? Twilight Zone quarter is how you characterize it. You cut the price target to 60 bucks from 130, and then I'm scratching my head saying, well, why the heck does he have an outperform reiterating that today? How, how could you possibly call something a Twilight Zone quarter, cut its price target by more than half, and then reiterate an outperform? Yeah, it's a great question. And and look, if I look at Rivian, this has been from the moment of the IPO, uh, it's really been a twilight zone in terms of communication, the supply chain issues, the price increase, and then ultimately the Mia couple where they didn't do it. But, but our bullishness in terms of why we stay positive on this cautiously 
is because of our overall view of pickup trucks in terms of moving to EVs. I think Rivian, if I look out the next three to four years, they still have a massive opportunity in terms of the conversion. No doubt, one more PR issue, one more supply chain or communication, the story could be potentially done. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, in 21 years, this has probably been one of our top three worst calls, being bullish on this coming out of the gates. But look, we're not throwing the towel in here because I do still believe in the overall story in terms of where EV conversion is going. But no, this has been, uh, you know, really a, a what I call a disaster story for uh, investors that believed it, and that's it's been very unfortunate in terms of the way that management's gone about it. Okay, so I I certainly I, I know our viewers appreciate the the contrition, um, and I I know they do. Let me ask you this straight up: Would your call be wholly different today if Amazon wasn't in the picture? And is that one of the only things that keeps you on the hook? If Amazon wasn't in the picture, we, we would not be bullish. I mean, Amazon's really? a, a okay. key piece to the story because of the commercial side, because of ultimately what we see in terms of the build out of the Rivian story. Without Amazon, I, I don't believe even Rivian is the, we're talking in the same stratosphere where they are today. And I think that's ultimately why the stock's not down more is because of Amazon, because of the commercial piece. But I think this is just... It's a cautionary tale if you look at Rivian. All the hype, you could say it's a poster child to some of the hype, but management, the execution, the communication, that's really been, you know, I think what's been just overall black eye for the EV space and for Rivian, it's been a disaster. Because, you know, I I don't know, I'd be the first to admit, I don't know the full ins and outs of the Amazon uh, deal, and I put deal in in quotes. From what I understand, though, it's it's not a binding deal. Um, they don't have to necessarily follow through. So it still remains somewhat of a wild card. Well, if Amazon starts to hedge their bets and they start to look at the 313 area code and they start to go outside Rivian, I think that's where the story gets a lot more worrisome. As well as also for Rivian, they could talk supply chain issues all they want, but the dog ate the homework excuse is not going to work anymore especially in this type of market, white knuckles, where investors bet their, you know, bet their money that Rivian was going to come through. And so far, it's been a nightmare on Elm Street story. Okay, I mean, you're you're suggesting that if they go to Detroit, right, and if they start looking at at General Motors or Ford, as, as those companies are trying to expand their own footprints in a very large way, then this story takes a dramatically negative turn. It's a totally different story if that happens. Mm. Stephanie Link, you have a question for Dan? Yeah, hi, Dan. Um, So this company, they missed the first quarter after the IPO. That's a big no-no in my book anyway. The whole pricing fiasco, up 20%, and then 48 hours later, they actually took it back. And then the soft guide from last night, I would argue it's not a communication issue. It's an execution issue. Are are these guys just not ready for prime time? It just seems like they, they just can't get it together. Yeah, it felt like the JV team out there that wasn't ready for prime time. And I think yeah. that's what's been such a shocker to people like myself, industry watchers that had a lot of faith in RJ, the, the mansion team they built, you know, in terms of the, the, the Amazon roots, in terms of them coming out public and then missing first quarter out of the gates. And then just everything you talked about, this has really been, you know, almost just a you know, I think more than a frustrating story, it's been a head scratcher and one where a lot of industry watchers are, are looking at this and say, can they turn around? 
is it a broken story? We do we do not believe it's a broken story. However, this is a fork in the road situation for Rivian, for RJ, for the team over the next three to six months. I mean, we do not think it's a broken story. You, you have to add yet. Um, I think that's only fair, right? And I, I know that's the way you're thinking about. <laughs> that's fair. I, I know I know that's the way you're thinking about the story. Um, Dan, I appreciate it very much. Thanks for coming on. It's good to see Thanks you. Thanks for having me. All right, that's Dan Ives, uh, Wedbush, uh, joining us. Dr. J, you own Rivian puts still? Yep, uh, uh, but I'm out of most of them, Scott. I mean, this one was taken apart. Dan's exactly right. So is Steph. Um, you know, what a nightmare story. And we all root for companies like this to succeed. And I think overall they will, but it may be, you know, that they succeed with somebody else as a partner, Scott. Um, we had some puts on this one. DocuSign at the 95 put strike. I mean, my gosh, when they take these one these stocks out, they don't just take them out for 5 or 10%. They take them out for a, a quarter of the value of the company. That's not good, especially since both these are so far from their high flying numbers just months ago, weeks ago. Anastasia, I feel like you didn't get your due today, and I, I apologize to you for that. Are you able to hang with us uh, through the next block? I am. No worries, Scott. I am. Yeah, all right, good stuff. All right, you'll do that. Uh, up next, a big downgrade for a big oil stock. So we'll ask uh, Anastasia about her view on energy. After a huge run, we're going to debate that call, whether the energy trade is, in fact, topping out. And tune into our CNBC special show ahead of the Fed decision next week, hosted by Tyler Matheson and Steve Leisman. Inflation, stagflation, housing, oil, and more. That's tonight, 6 o'clock Eastern. We're back right here on The Half in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high value customers drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The other G7 nations now joining President Biden's move to end Russia's most favored nation trading status because of its invasion of Ukraine. The G7 countries also say that they will continue to develop and implement measures that will further isolate Russia. In central Ukraine, meantime, local officials reporting three Russian airstrikes killed at least one person. In the city of Dnipro, the attacks reportedly hit near a kindergarten and an apartment building. Now, these are the first reported airstrikes on Dnipro since the invasion began. 
The United Nations now says that more than two and a half million Ukrainians have fled their country and another two million have been displaced within Ukraine since Russia's attacks began. And the head of Ukraine's nuclear power company says that Russian forces unsuccessfully attempted to take full control of Ukraine's and Europe's largest nuclear power plant. He says that the plant staff were told that the plant now belonged to Russia's state nuclear company, but that the company's officials weren't able to enter the plant to take control. And on the news tonight, Russian troops getting closer to Kyiv and new attacks in western Ukraine. The latest tonight at 7 Eastern. Scott. All right. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. Let's talk Chevron, downgraded to underweight. You don't see that that often. That's a J.P. Morgan. The firm saying its valuation looks increasingly full. It's our call of the day. Jason Snipe, you own it. What do you think about this? Yeah, yeah. So obviously Chevron has had a tremendous year, up 45% year to date. I mean, it's really played into the supply demand story early part of this year. I mean, energy period is up 40%. You know, and they've really done a great job of cost containment, capital discipline. You know, so for me, I haven't trimmed it yet. You know, with, with some volatility in the energy space, I could see that happening in the next couple of weeks for us, you know, as a firm and, and looking to trim it. But um, it's got the greatest, it's got the best balance sheet in the industry. Uh, so for us, you know, it, it, it's, been, it's been a market weight hold for us you know, here. So I still like it. We'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks. All right. So, Steph, it's your largest position. At least it was. I know you've been trimming some energy holdings. So what do you what do you do now? Yeah. Right. The stocks had a had a great run. Six months. It's up 80 percent year to date near 50. Is the valuation now just too rich? had a nice run. First and foremost, this analyst had a neutral on it all the way up. So to go from a neutral to sell, he missed it, right? So I get it, though. It's up 45 percent, but it still yields a 3.3 percent uh, yield. Um, it's a juggernaut, Scott. It's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a powerhouse. It's Chevron and Exxon, and then you barbell it with all these other things like the Schlumbergers and uh, the Diamondback Energies that, I've, uh, that I own. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a juggernaut because steady, they have steady production, they're lowering their CapEx, and as a result, they have a huge free cash flow and they're putting it to work they increase their buyback to 10 billion dollars from five and uh they uh, are, are they also increase their dividend so i like it i'm going to hold on to it i might shed the other names um but uh, this one i'm going to keep jim you've been trimming energy uh, do you feel like this trade is about done um, I feel it's going to take a temporary pause. I mean, remember the things that I was saying about supply likely to come online. And if oil just slightly goes below 100 down to 95, I think that's going to that's going to take a lot of sentiment out of the sector. You've got to recognize that uh, Chevron is a quarter of the XLE. I'm still overweight energy, but I would look to add to energy on pullbacks, which I think will be coming. And when that happens, Chevron's likely one I will add. It's the creme de la creme in the group. But I'm, I have been trimming. I'm sitting with what I've got right now. I would look to add on pullbacks. John, what do you do with the calls you have? Well, Scott, uh, as you know, because you and I have talked about it now for six weeks, um, I had a lot of stock. I've exited almost all of the stocks in the energy space. But my exposure is the same. I just replace stock with options, with call options and call spreads. What do I do with these calls? Uh, like Jim said, on dips, I would buy them. I mean, look at Steph's point is excellent here. Uh, this particular analyst uh, had a very uh, dim outlook for this stock and was dead wrong. Why am I going to follow this analyst now 
if there was a reaction to the downside on it, I'd be happy to buy more calls. But this isn't even denting the stock today, Scott. I think all energy goes up for basically the next three to six months across the board. Uranium, um, BTU like Peabody and uh, Patterson Energy, as well as all these oil and gas stocks, because the uh, cutbacks and the sanctions that's going to be the result higher energy prices yeah no i think people are afraid to sell these stocks for for all of the reasons yep. that that you just said uh john anastasia mm -hmm. this trade done more to go what do you think I don't think it's done. I wouldn't be exiting the energy space right now. If you look at the price of crude where it is today, it is actually around fair value. I mean, we're still looking at demand that's rebounding strongly and supply is a big question mark. So at this level of prices, I think we can, first of all, expect them to be sustained. And at this level of prices, oil and gas companies in the U.S. are making a lot of money, which, by the way, if we're trying to ramp up production and we have $100 a barrel of crude oil. This is the time to do it. So we should say high, have high prices higher production this all bodes well for energy shares and scott i'll just say that amidst this tough market environment you want to be adding dividend payers to the portfolio and like steph said energy offers a very nice dividend yield and probably one of the better trades to hedge geopolitical risk so i'm sticking with it i mean farmer jim is is right though anastasia right i mean one positive it, i can't think of a sector that has more headline risk to it than energy if you get a, a wholly positive bunch of headlines from Ukraine, uh, this trade is going to look in trouble, at least for the time being, potentially. Well, I would tell you that oil would probably look in trouble. You could have some pretty big gyrations there, but I would still decouple you know, oil from the energy shares themselves. If you have anywhere above 40 or $50 barrel of crude oil, which we have well above that, that is a very big margin of safety. That is a very big profit margin for some of these companies. So yes, maybe you take a little bit of gains, maybe you pull back a little bit, but in this environment where we can have the certainty to know which way this breaks, I would rather hold a cash flowing asset that's increasingly high quality. The leverage is quite low in the energy space that produces a dividend and it gives me that risk that if, if we're not right and there's no de-escalation in Ukraine, that this is one of the better edges still. All right. I appreciate you sticking around a little bit longer than uh, expected. Uh, Anastasia Amoroso, have a good weekend. We'll see you soon. Still ahead, John has unusual activity. Plus, next week is gearing up to be a critical one for Russian bondholders. We're following the money. Our Leslie Picker is too. New reporting is next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. 
What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We continue to follow the story of which firms have exposure to Russia and who could be poised to lose big as a result. Our Leslie Picker has some new reporting on what a default might look like. It's good to see you, Les. And I mean, next week is the big deal. That's right, Scott. And a default will not be pretty in this scenario. At, at this point, investors, rating agencies, the market, all indicating a high likelihood that the default occurs in Russian bonds. There's a more than $100 million interest payment due on the 16th next week. And even if Putin were willing to pay a big if, it's unclear how those payments would even get sent given the wartime financial sanctions on the country. If nothing changes, Russia could be facing a hard default 30 days later. As a result, credit default swaps, which compensate investors if Russia is unable to service its debt, surging today. But this won't be a regular traditional default with a restructuring process that people are used to. We're talking about money owed by a sanctioned country. Jay Newman, a hedge fund manager who specializes in sovereign debt, has reviewed the Russian bond contracts and says they have uniquely minimal creditor protections. Some analysts are using Venezuela as precedent. The South American nation defaulted back in 2017 and several years later, the U.S. imposed sanctions. U.S. investors are able to sell, not buy, Venezuelan bonds, causing the debt load to get whittled down over time, priced at a mere pennies on the dollar. But here is the irony. Venezuela is now urging its debt holders to pressure the Biden administration to lift its sanctions so it can restructure its debt, get more oil flowing from South America as the spigot is turned off in Russia. So, very complicated situation on the ground, but clearly a lot of geopolitics at play across multiple regions in this world, we, Scott. We mentioned yesterday, uh, Leslie, your confirmation of that story about the potential losses that PIMCO is, is staring at, right? Like $2.5 billion. Now they have assets that are greater than $2 trillion uh, under management. Um, so we're, we're, we're not talking about uh, a catastrophic situation. But do we know of any more PIMCOs that, that may be out there? It's a good question. PIMCO, as you mentioned, that exposure was pretty minimal relative to the overall size of their portfolio and their AUM. Of course, a massive fund or a massive firm overseeing more than $2 trillion. We took a look at some of the other PIMCO-like uh, funds, especially in emerging markets. There was actually an interesting statistic from Morningstar that only 8% of emerging market funds did not have Russian exposure. So 92% of every emerging market fund had some kind of Russian exposure. So there are a lot of these out there in absolute terms. We don't have a dollar figure quite yet because things are fast moving. Uh, but certainly there are significant markdowns of any fund that's been exposed to Russia. I think thus far, I, I think we have a fairly decent idea that that though a large number have some exposure, the exposure they have is small, relatively speaking. Correct. Right. So we're not talking about a tremendous amount of, of risk 
necessarily that a lot of these funds are, are, are staring at. That's right. We're not seeing it as much play out in the levered funds where you would see potentially some greater risk of unwinding. Now, those could pop up over time, but thus far, I don't have evidence of too much exposure and too much risk in some of the more levered funds like you've seen in previous crises in the past. Mm. Doesn't mean they don't exist. They just haven't popped up yet. These are much smaller proportions of the portfolios. They're taking marks, you know, on their performance. But as far as an overall impact a systemic contagion like event we haven't seen that yet all right i know you'll continue to follow the money and let us know what you find that's leslie picker have a good weekend you we'll, too. we'll take a quick break we'll come back doc has unusual activity next it is time for unusual activity john Nigerian, what do you see today well scott uh not surprising energy um in all of its forms as i said Um, And you take a look at Valero, for instance, right now, Scott. This is transmission, it's refining, it's um, reusing diesel and uh, ethanol and so forth. These guys are at the core of what's going to be in huge demand going forward. So take a look at Valero, doubled since October of 2020. I'm showing the April 100 calls. Stock's 90, and they're buying the 100 calls in big numbers today, Scott. I bought the 90 strike. My intention is to sell higher strikes against it as it rallies. Second one, Equitrans Midstream. Yeah, that's right. These guys are one of those transmission uh, of that energy product, ETRN. They're buying the March 7 calls. That's next Friday expiration. It's a $7.50 stock, uh, $3.5, $4 billion, somewhere in that range. I like this one. I think any single-digit energy names can see big moves. Um, it's not quite the same since it's just transmission, but nonetheless, I like this one, too. I'm in both of these trades, Scott. All right. Thank you, Doc. For that, final trades after this break. Another reminder, Monday, 4 p.m. Eastern. I really hope you'll join me for the premiere of Closing Bell Overtime. The bell may ring. The action, though, it does not stop. And you can expect late breaking news, after hours action, the same type of actionable ideas you get right here on the half. We have a great lineup next week. Brad Gerstner is going to be with me. Jeffrey Gunlock will be with me on Fed Day. Ricky Sandler, Mark Lazary, Nancy Davis rounding out the launch week that we are so excited about. You'll see some familiar faces. You'll see some new ones, too. Monday, 4 p.m. Eastern. I hope you will spend another hour with me. Stephanie Link, we're going to do final trades in a minute, but I wanted to ask you about Amazon and that stock split and ask you if you have any regrets in selling that stock, given what you know now. No, I don't, but it's on my radar screen. I was underweight this stock for the last year, so Mm -hmm. I just sold off a tag end in January. But uh, this is nice news. Um, It doesn't mean that much, in my opinion. The split is mainly for retail. The buyback is silly. It's only 0.7% of shares outstanding. And they had a buyback uh, of of 5 billion in 2016. They still had $2.9 billion left in that program. So this one replaces that one. We'll see what they do. It's a confidence measure for sure. But uh, in my opinion, not yet. It's too early to buy it. What's the final trade you got for me quick stuff? Expedia, strong bookings, good profitability, very little exposure in Europe. Okay, good stuff. Jason Snipe. I like Target here. Operating margins continue to grow. Their private label business is up 18%, almost a $30 billion business now. So I like Target. Dr. J. 
Um, Macy's put, Scott, I hate to say it, but downside action in Macy's expected at the 24 strike. I own puts. The man who doesn't back down from anything, Farmer Jim. Home Depot, this is a great entry point for what should be a multi-year winner. All right, you make your call, you stick to it, Jimmy, and then we see what happens. That's how the game's played, right? Yes, sir. All right, you guys yes, have, judge. A, you have a great weekend, all you as well. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.